Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Christian Axbo Nielsen. I am Associate Professor of Human Security and History at Aarhus University in Denmark. My guest today is Carlo Basta, who is a lecturer at the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh and also co-director of the University Center on Constitutional Change. Today we're going to be discussing Carlo's new book, The Symbolic State, Minority Recognition, Majority Backlash, and Secession in Multinational Countries, published in 2021 by McGill Queens University Press. Carlo, hello and welcome to the episode. Hello, Christian. Great to be here and thank you for this. I'm looking forward to uh, discussing a book that has uh, taken me on a journey to a number of countries and uh, also caused me to think a lot about how uh, multinational states are uh, uh, both constructed and uh, perceived, uh, not least by the their politicians and the people who live in these states. So let's start off with a, a quick question. How did you come to write this book and, and why did you choose uh, these particular cases? Um, well, right. So, you know, it took me maybe two or three years to, to actually write this iteration of the book, but the project took significantly longer, um, depending on how you count. I started with it somewhere around 2004, 2006, um, and then um, I, I wrote it essentially in two stages, right? So, and that's that's reflected in the book's two two stage argument or kind of two round argument. So, I started as a doctoral dissertation at the University of Toronto, and um, during that uh, time, basically, I tried to answer a, a question that was far narrower and and honestly, frankly, I think a, a lot less interesting than than the one that I ended up with uh, uh, for the book itself. And the question was, why is it that governments in some multinational states are more likely than than those in others to give more fiscal autonomy to minority regions? So, you know, why is it that central governments give more money to raise and spend to, you know, your Quebec or Scotland or whatever, right? And uh, this starting point really explains why I picked the four cases uh that you read about in the book, and the cases are Spain, Canada, uh, former Yugoslavia, and former Czechoslovakia. So the starting point for for the answer to, to, to that question about kind of fiscal autonomy was was a hunch that central governments are going to be more likely to give you know more resources if both sets of governments, uh, that is to say, both the central government and the regional government that is asking for more. If both of these governments pursue similar economic models, so if either they both embraced uh, sort of the, the market and want to minimize the role of the state, or if they both focus on the state and what the state can do um, for the population. So, so my kind of hypothesis here was that if, um, if, if both of these governments essentially align on what they want to do, that uh, the central government is more likely uh, to go pretty far in, in granting more autonomy on, on fiscal matters to the minority region. And if they clash, that this is less likely. Right. So what I needed was four countries that corresponded to one of the four configurations. Right. So status, status or pro-market, pro-market or, or some variation uh, of the two. And I came up with with those four cases that I that I just mentioned a little bit before, which is Spain, Canada, Yugoslavia, and uh, Czechoslovakia. And so that was the first stage, right? That was the that was the dissertation. That was two thousand four to two thousand eleven twelve. And then after, I basically uh, was was undoing all of that. Uh, I really wasn't happy with that question. And in fact, the reason I, I wasn't happy with that question was because so many people around me, including my my supervisor and people in my my dissertation defense were, were not happy with it because they were they, people constantly asked me, okay, that's fine, all of this stuff about you know fiscal autonomy, but what does this what does this tell us about the the big questions, right? The big question, the biggest being, 
you know, what accounts for the emergence of secessionist movements or, or what accounts for their success in, in, in achieving what, what it is that they, uh, that they seek to achieve. So, so that's basically that, that essentially the pursuit of that question shifted that project and, uh, and that took about another decade until I wrote the book. I think this is one of the interesting aspects of the book for me is that it combines the um, more technical, uh, technocratic political economy side uh, with the more emotionally charged uh, dynamic uh, term of of symbolic politics. And and we're going to come back to that. But while we're on terms, I I stumbled a bit uh, when I first received your book over the term multinational state, which is, of course, the key term uh, here and and explains your choice of cases. So why do you choose uh, this term for states such as Yugoslavia and Spain? And in particular, why did you choose multinational state instead of uh, multi-ethnic state, which I think is is, um, perhaps more widely used? And you're absolutely right. Uh, it is more widely used, uh, and it's a fantastic and very important question, I'd say. So I'd say there's a tendency in uh, just in general kind of public discourse, uh, you know, journalists, politicians, but people in general, um, but also in academia, which which to my mind is more worrying, to um, to essentially um, speak of ethnicity and nation nationhood as if they were interchangeable in some sense, right? Uh, now the two overlap to some degree, uh, but but they're definitely not the same. They're they're qualitatively different categories. Um, so I guess in order to answer the question, I think the easiest way to to kind of start this would be to uh, uh, to say that basically nationalist conflict is not the same as ethnic conflict, though though there may be some overlap between the two, right? So for instance, the Bosnian conflict that both you and I know a few things about you far more than I. Um, so many people construe it, I, I would argue, misconstrue it as an ethnic conflict, right? Um, but in fact, Bosnian conflict then in the 1990s, but also now, was a clash of uh, self-determination claims. Uh, and to my mind, because it was a clash of self-determination claims, it was a nationalist co- conflict primarily, right? Though the national categories to a significant degree overlapped with ethnic ones, right? And, and especially for the Serbs and the Croats, but less so for the Bosnian or Bosnian identity category. Right, and it's the same thing for Northern Ireland, for for example. There, there's quite a few people who, just because of the terminology used, right, Protestants, Catholics, all of that, seem to kind of uh, view the conflict as a religious one, even though it's fundamentally about self determination claims. So, therefore, that conflict too is also a nationalist one, right? So, I would say a nation is whatever community, no matter what its what its you know um, outward characteristics are, whose members, quote unquote, claim the right to govern themselves as they see fit, right? Um, and that community, so so a nation may be multi-ethnic, right? So Americans are a multi-ethnic nation, so are Brazilians or Mexicans, possibly Indians, because depending on what part of the Indian community you're considering. Um, a nation also could be uh, mono-ethnic, so that the national community is coterminous or, or near coterminous with, with the ethnic community, and I'd say maybe Japan or the Japanese uh, come close to this. Uh, or you could have a nation that's mono-ethnic, but, or largely mono-ethnic, but where ethnicity uh, is shared across borders. So you could have Chileans and Argentinians uh, who share Iberian origins, or, or, or those that do, uh, who are nevertheless members of different nations, even though they they share or they may share this this ethnic uh, uh, ethnic origin. So, so th- this to me is is a very very key uh, distinction, right? So it's only if a particular community of people that also considers itself to be a distinctive kind of descent based community. Uh, that would make it an ethnic group, if that group makes a political claim to self-government, they start constituting a nation. But if they're simply demanding their share of material or political goods or representation, then we're talking about ethnic politics. So let's say a clear example of that would be the U.S. population of African descent, uh, you know. Even though even there, over certain certain points during the 19, sorry the twentieth century, there were claims that that took that kind of nationalist form. Right, right. now, I mean, and, and and there again is a point that we probably want to come back to later, which is this conflation of um, national interests and ethnic interests, and of course also um, 
the manipulation or opportunic, uh, opportunistic uh, abuse of, of, of such interests, which we also see uh, in in Bosnia, the the case you mentioned there. Um, now, your your uh, introduction, uh, of course, lays out the book's goals, and here you state, and I'm quoting you, that the the book's primary goal is to encourage the formation of a subfield explicitly dedicated to the study of the multinational state as a unique subject with its own dynamics and concerns. Um, now, here's kind of the, the challenging question for you. If I uh, go through the shelves of, of any university library, uh, I'm kind of at times overwhelmed by the hundreds of books about what you call multinational states. So uh, why should we read your book in particular? Right. Thanks again. for the, This too is an important question. So I, I want to make it clear, right? I'm not saying that uh, people have not written about multinational states. That's clearly not the case, as you rightly pointed out, right? So there's numerous histories of individual multinational states, everything from how those states came about to their travails to perhaps how they, how they ended up breaking up in some cases or, uh, and, and everything in between, right? Um, in addition, there, there are also numerous comparative studies of multinational states. But my point is that the explanatory theoretical study right, of, of the multinational state um, has explored only a narrow slice of, of issues pertaining to, to, to this phenomenon. Right? So um, there's, a, there's a very broad range of potential issues pertaining to the multinational state. And I would say there's this, and I, and I do make that claim in, in the book, um, there has been this tendency to overemphasize one or two particular sets of issues. And the two that I have in mind in, in particular are specifically the effect of institutions. And, and here, I mean, especially sort of federal institutions or power sharing institutions or different kinds of policies along those lines, how those institutions affect the stability of multinational states. And more recently, I would say, um, trying to account for kind of secessionist movements, which is not to say that there has not been work on secession prior to, let's say, 2000. But I'd say over the last two decades, we've had a more systematic kind of, uh, you know, exploration of that particular issue. But uh, there's a range of other issues that we know far, far less, less about, right? So the origins of, of those states. And again, I mean, in the theoretical explanatory sense, uh, rather than a, a historical study of a particular country, right? That we know far less about, right? Or the institutional development of those states or the meaning of those institutions. And so to, to give you one example, um, there's this fairly substantial body of work in sociology and politics or political science that looks at the uh, uh, the formation of the modern state, right? And this entire body of literature pays almost no attention to the formation of the multinational state as a separate category of modern polity, right? So it's as if the, the only modern state that exists is the nation state. But that's clearly not the case, right? Because many modern states currently existing in those that have expired, you know, UK, Spain, Bosnia, Iraq, Ethiopia, none of these are nation states, right? And that assumption of nation statehood then makes it easy for people to conflate the terms nation and state as well, right? So, and that's particularly the case, I think, among the Americans, when they go the the American nation, when in fact they mean the American state or government does X, Y, or Z, and I and I think this itself is also problematic. So I guess the the answer to your question why why people should read this particular book um, among others is that it, the book introduces I think greater clarity in the distinction between state and nation, and then particularly between nation states and multinational uh, multinational states. Um, and I say this repeatedly in the book. Um, Yet another reason that the book, I think, stands out is because it makes the case that um, explanations of particular political phenomena uh, that are developed by reference to nation states will have a limited applicability to multinational ones. So if you're looking to understand, let's say, the dynamics of federalism in multinational states, you may not learn that much uh, from, I guess, from theoretical work developed in, in reference to Argentinian or, or Austrian or Australian. Federalism. And the same goes for constitutional politics or party politics or, or politics of social policy, etc. I think uh, now that you mention it, the uh, banishing the conflation of nation and state from uh, American, U.S. American vocabulary is, is 
somewhere on a wish list of mine, but I, I, uh, I, I somehow don't think that, that uh, it will be accomplished. But your, 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 your book certainly makes it clear as to your arguments here why, why that would be better. Um, now, um, your book contains, uh, as we already alluded to earlier in this interview, two stories, as you call them. One is about political economy. One is about symbolic politics and your four cases, Canada, Spain, Yugoslavia, and post-socialist Czechoslovakia. So just uh, briefly, uh, you, I think you've already kind of given us the political economy story. Uh, how would you explain the story about symbolic politics. Right. So there's, there's really no, it's difficult to kind of peel the two, the two, I guess, stories or the two rounds off. Uh, I'll, I'll try to make it as, as brief as, as I can. Uh, uh, and this is the heart of the, of the book, obviously. Right. So, um, it, it, so the starting point of the book is that when, when political representatives of minority nations uh, uh, make their demands for for greater self-government, uh, they're doing two things. Uh, the first, and that's something that, again, we, we spoke about a little bit earlier, they're asking for more powers and resources in order to be able to do, do certain kinds of things, facilitate faster economic development or protect cultural language or control, you know, uh, in migration, things of that nature, right? So I call this the instrumental dimension of autonomy. We want X because it helps us get Y, right? Um, and by the way, I would say that most people, when they look, the outsiders, when they look at multinational states, they they tend to focus on this. They, they tend to see these kinds of rational, instrumental elements of, of the story of demands and, and responses. But that's only... I would say even less than half of the story, because the the other thing that minorities, when they when they make these claims, do is they they're asking to be recognized as distinct nations within the common state, and they're asking the government of that state to acknowledge that the state is in some sense multinational, rather than being a state of a uh, of a community that, for all its diversity, is nevertheless the same demos, the same political community, a single political community, right? And so this this acknowledgement, this this recognition, and I call this the symbolic angle, right? It can it can take a bunch of forms. One of which is, let's say, asymmetric federal arrangements. That's the case in uh, you know, in Canada and Spain. In some in other cases, it can be demand for symmetry. So, for example, in Czechoslovakia, the Slovaks were demanding symmetry prior to 1968. Uh, so that's the first thing, right? Like the the, the way in which the the um, the, the the lines on the map are, are effectively drawn and, and and what they mean. And yet another way would be to kind of stamp this recognition onto the constitution of the state through, for instance, acknowledging that a particular community is a nation or 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 that the country itself is a multinational country, right? So there's these two things, right? Uh, and they're simultaneously uh, made those those two claims, right? Uh, for greater autonomy, the instrumental bit, and for greater recognition. And so my book basically narrates two qualitatively different rounds uh, of central government responses to these demands. So in in three of the four cases, I look at somewhere between three and four decades right, of this process. And what I found was that uh, while the, the demands by minority nations were broadly consistent, although with some qualitative differences, um, the responses by the central governments were different. So in the first round, in the early going, the central governments tend to do more on the instrumental side. They tend to give more policy autonomy, more resources, but they tend to ignore the symbolic bits, right? Um, but the the claims by minority nations don't end there, in part because those claims are never only about the instrumental bits anyway. So the minorities escalate their demands, rearticulate the demands both for greater instrumental but also greater kind of symbolic concessions. And it's in this second round, right, once this is done, once there's sort of a a minority escalation in in terms of demands, uh, that we see this round two when the central government recognizing that it's no longer sufficient to just give, you know, concessions on the instrumental grounds basically also extends the symbolic ones. And here, uh, the whole kind of political game transforms because anytime a central government kind of either tries or, or actually does accommodate the symbolic side of the demands for the minorities, what it does is it um, antagonizes at least a substantial proportion of the majority population because it unsettles 
their understanding of their collective selfhood, of which political community they're a part of, and, and what the character of the state that expresses that is. And so here, the story becomes interesting because the, the conditions for a majority backlash materialize. And if that backlash takes the form of open kind of political mobilization by at least a segment of the majority community against those, those minority claims, um, there's an increasing chance that those, those concessions that were given to minority nations are going to be either rescinded or reversed. And it's, and it's this that, that actually, I think, pours fuel on the fires of, of secession. So that's basically the, the story. I'm not sure if that's, I hope that that makes sense, right? But, but it, is, it is quite a kind of dialectical back and forth. Right, and uh, this is going to take us to to the the process tracing, um, but uh, and and we'll come back to to this this what you call majority backlash because I think it's it's actually for me maybe the most interesting part of the book and also uh, of course leads us to the key question of how one can avoid that uh, in in such uh, cases. Now going back to your case studies, you've got what one might say is a, or some might say is a rather modest number of them. Um, and in your methodological section, you have a slightly rebellious criticism of studies involving large qualitative data sets, which for at least uh, some time have been all the rage in, in political science. So why did you choose this particular approach of uh, four case studies versus the large data set option. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I want to I want to kind of latch on to something you said initially, which is that it's a modest number of cases, right? So I would say for those that uh, say political scientists or sociologists who do uh, work uh, in the quantitative tradition, it, it might be a modest number. But then um, the study is probably too much for for many historians. And in fact, I recall the expression on faces of, of a few uh, colleagues, historian colleagues, when they would ask me, "Okay, so what is it that you do?" And I say, "Okay, well, this is the study, and I have these four cases." And the you know the expression on the, on the faces was priceless. It was, "Oh, okay, another one of these uh, political science, a historical bits, right?" So I, I this is why you can't see my face when we're doing this interview. Go, you know exactly. <laughs> so I, I so I kind of I knew that I. It, a study like this is never good enough for at least a segment of uh, on either end, right? It's either uh, too few cases or too many. Uh, but I think that for the questions that I posed, um, it was the right number of cases, and more importantly, these were the right cases. Um, as to as to why four rather than let's say more, there's at least two reasons here, right? Uh, and the first one relates to the process tracing bit that you mentioned, and that we might get back to. Um, so what I sought to explain here uh, were processes. And in fact, processes that, as I, as I mentioned, kind of unfolded in three of the, of the four cases, although for Czechoslovakia, I also argued that it's, a, it's something quite lengthy, that unfolded over decades, right? So I had to provide a relatively coherent narrative covering these lengthy periods of time for each case, and that limits what can feasibly be done, right? So I mean, I can't have 20 or 30 of these in a book. Um, but the second reason was that I wanted to compare the, the comparable. And that's more, I think, methodologically uh, and, and, and theoretically justifiable reason. Um, and I put this in the book as well. Um, I wanted to leverage a small number of, of what I believe to be highly comparable cases um, in order to kind of test out this, this understanding of the importance of the politics of institutional symbolism, which I kind of emphasize, right? Whether or not it holds water. But I did want to see whether this specific claim, right, that, that kind of round one, round two interaction of majority-minority nationalism, this specific kind of pattern, you know, let's see if this actually holds water. Um, I'm, I'm very, very skeptical about the possibility that the same set of very specific causal claims like that one would hold across all multinational states over the past 200 years, right? And the main reason for that is that I think that state meaning, like what the state actually means for different populations varies both across space and across time. Right. And you, you, I think that that's where you make the historians uh, a bit happier that, that you, you do, in your introduction and again in your conclusion, you come back and remind us that you're not proposing a universal model here, and you're actually, I think, uh, admirably modest in in uh, uh, generalizing uh, to other areas. And of course, 
there's also a discussion here of about your your three of your cases being uh, in Europe, uh, the fourth case being arguably more European than anything else, right? Uh, so um, there, there's, uh, we can also discuss what that means. Uh, and and uh, you explain, um, readers should know in your book, why you did not choose, say, South Asian or African examples in, in, in the book. Uh, now, you just mentioned uh, majority-minority nationalism. Um, in in a couple of your cases, Czechoslovakia, uh, Canada, Spain, uh, there's a, a clear mi- a majority nation and therefore uh, a majority nationalism. And there's, of course, minority nationalisms. In the case of Spain, uh, we have Basque nationalism, we have Catalonian nationalism. Now, as you know, uh, Carlo, there was no majority nation in Yugoslavia, uh, demographically speaking, though some might say that some Serb politicians at times behaved as if the Serbs were the majority nation. So does the fact that Yugoslavia only, or in this sense, only contained minority nations make it an outlier in terms of your cases? So I I don't... um... I mean, I, I know where the question is coming from, but I don't think so. And, and that goes back to the, the, the notion of, of meaning and perception, right? So you're right. Obviously, there was no outright absolute majority in Yugoslavia. Serbs constituted somewhere in the order of 40, 41% of the population. Um, but it's not just the Serb politicians that at times behaved as if the Serbs were uh, a majority. It was also the non-Serb politicians behaved as if the Serbs were an absolute majority both in terms of their, of, of their kind of political action and the rhetoric, right? But that's exactly the problem. Exact numbers do not matter as much as behavior patterns and, and relevant, relevant narratives, right? So um, where I, I think that the situation is comparable is because of, of, of the kinds of claims and counterclaims that are so similar across these four cases as to be uncanny. Uh, and just to kind of give you a a sense of what I mean. Um, I mentioned on several occasions of the book that majorities, whether they're relative or absolute, tend to tend to identify with the with the common state uh, much more uh, strongly than than minority nations, or they tend to be less um, less conditional about their identification with that state, right? Uh, and they find it more uh, they find it easier to adopt the kind of the transnational. So in this case, let's say Yugoslav identity than members of minority nations, although that too varies right across time. Uh, And I find that uh, to have been the case in terms of the kinds of criticisms of minority claims when they were made uh, by the, by the Serb representatives um, and, uh, and the kinds of reactions that you kind of see. And they were very, very similar across these cases because you see something very, very similar happening in Canada and in Spain and in Czechoslovakia. Uh, so just like you know, the Serb politicians or intellectuals, in all of these other cases, there's always this kind of, um, on behalf of the majority, this sort of incredulity, not really understanding what the, what the big deal is, right? Um, and, and, and I think this is something that you can actually see not only in multinational state, states, but also in multi-ethnic states, to go back to what we were talking about, where you have uh, certain segments, minority segments of the population making claims for greater protection of their identity or, or, or safety and uh, and segments of the majority population really not getting what what the big deal is quote unquote all about right so I think there are so many similarities across these four cases that that the fact that there was no absolute majority in Yugoslavia um, did not really make for a qualitative difference in terms of the politics okay all right now um you also, and I just want to stay on Yugoslavia for a little bit before going back to one of your terms, your key terms. Um, I'm, I was a bit curious, you say in, in your book that you arrived at uh, Yugoslavia having potentially six self-determination m- movements. Uh, how did you come up with that number? Because I was doing the math on the back of an envelope and I maybe came up with a slightly different number. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I, I always like to qualify these because it, it depends on when you're looking at what you count as a self-determination movement. So let's count together, right? So let's assume Slovenian, Croatian, Bosniak, uh, uh, Macedonian, Kosovo, Albanian, and potentially Montenegrin. Although, again, I, I understand how contentious this might be, but if we were to take the Montenegrins prior to 1990 off the off the 
uh, you know, off the plate, then you can still argue that the the Serb resentments, particularly as they were as they were expressed from essentially, let's say, I don't know, depending on when you really and what you're looking at, late 1970s onwards, are also in a sense claims for for self determination. Right? Once the once there's this kind of abandonment of of Yugoslavism on behalf of a, of a significant proportion of at least of the Serbian uh, elite, right? Uh, they then endorse a kind of Serbianism that is a that is a that is a kind of self-determination movement. Daniela Conversi talked about secession from the center in, in effect when he was talking about this, right? So again, you can also add to this smaller other smaller movements are the Hungarians in, in Vojvodina uh, you know, does that count? Uh, do, do you count anything from the from the beginning of the war? Do you count uh, all the Serb or Croat ones as separate ones or, or as a single one, etc.? But what did you come up with? <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm not ready to tell you, but uh, we'll, we'll have that discussion o- over a year at some point in Edinburgh. All, although my real wish, uh, I have to say, since I, I have a long running, uh, going back to childhood, infatuation with the count from Sesame Street, so... Uh, I'm hoping that at some point they invite you on that show and then you can count potentially or potential self-determination movements together. You know, that I'm sure that would make for a hit episode now um, and teach the kids, you know, a thing or two about self-determination. So uh, let's go to comparative process tracing, because one of the things that I found really useful, and I'm sure I'm actually going to use it with my students, um, I like these flow charts that you had um, in each chapter where we kind of follow the rounds of negotiation um, and and uh, evolution of these uh, movements. So for those not in the know, um, how do you explain, um, how do you define comparative process tracing in the context of your arguments? Right. So, I mean, I'll start with process tracing, if you don't mind. And thanks. I, I'm, I'm glad you liked the, the flow charts. I, I had a, a bit of a time with those. I really wanted to, to have some sort of graphic representation to help things along, as, as people read. Um, so a process tracing is a, it's a methodological approach that historians would find pretty funny because it's what they believe it is. It's what they do as a matter of fact, right? You, you, you provide a narrative of what's, what's happened over a particular uh, time span. Um, but it does make sense in a discipline, um, let's say like political science, that goes for uh, theoretical generalizations on the basis of kind of correlational logic, right? So, for example, there's been this longstanding debate about the role of federalism and instability of multinational states. So you could have a study that has a bunch of cases, way more than I have there, that demonstrates uh, through a regression analysis, a correlation, let's say, between, uh, you know, a country having particular federal arrangements and experiencing secessionist movements, right? But the correlation doesn't really tell you what the causal mechanism is that connects federalism and secession, right? Why is it that you know, one correlates with the other. And in order to get at that, you'd need to look at the historical or political process to see whether first federalism actually links to secession, and if so, why and and how. So process tracing is the method that helps helps us get at that kind of causal mechanism between, you know, quote unquote variables, as we call them in political science. Mm-hmm. Um, and the comparative process tracing simply is the expansion of that approach to multiple processes to try to see whether or not the expectations uh, your your kind of theoretical expectations once you start your your data gathering whether they are borne out by what you what you what you kind of see in the historical uh, record and I should note parenthetically here that I really like I tried to be as hard on myself as possible because I did not want to publish anything where I essentially nitpicked um, or cherry picked sorry uh, I should say um, kind of bits and evidence so I was really looking for disconfirming bits of evidence in the historical record as I was devising these, these kind of, uh, 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 as I was running process tracing, as I was devising these narratives. You had me chuckling there a bit. Uh, uh, I think we need a paper, a methodological paper, pitting, uh, cherry picking versus nitpicking. Um, and and the, the comparative advantages and uh, disadvantages of both approaches, uh, uh, and we're, then we can argue about which uh, which ones are the political scientists and which ones are the uh, historians. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll put myself in the nitpicker camp right away. Um, now, um, uh, going back to the political economy approach, um, 
I have to say, uh, perhaps because I'm also a longtime reader of The Economist, um, I thought it allowed you to make some really interesting observations regarding the relationship between the relative strength of regional economies and their approach to increased autonomy, for example, the cases of Catalonia and Quebec. And again, I think this is a real strength of your book because um, in my own experience, uh, way too many people who focus on political economy, whether they're historians or political scientists, um, kind of become very technocratic and then uh, leave the symbols and the cultural aspects behind. Uh, and the uh, reverse is true for those who, um, um, you know, Stuart Kaufman or others who are, are very interested in, in, uh, in the symbols of nationalism and, and, and ethnicity. Uh, so can you maybe describe a little bit for us this finding? And um, also you used the term earlier in the interview of symmetry, how the, the symmetry of the political uh, economy uh, affects the uh, cases that you study. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure what, which which kind of finding you're referring to because I can like talk a little bit about how the how the kind of uh, territorial inequality in effect kind of uh, produces different kinds of claims. Uh, well, precisely, yeah, right. that, that's, okay. that's what I'm thinking of. Great, thank you. So, so yeah, I mean, this is uh, the the basic notion is that the the, the relative development of of a minority region will, uh, to a significant extent, shape not only uh, the kind of autonomy that political representatives uh, of that region will demand, but also what what they're going to do with it. And so I was very, very deliberate in in saying that autonomy, you know, is not the same thing from region to region. What 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 the what kind of it matters is the purpose to which autonomy is put. So what I found, and this is not something that that's uniquely mine. Obviously, other people have found the same thing, uh, including including people who engage in quantitative work, which is that. Uh, Regions that are more developed economically than the than the country average uh, will be more likely to push for sort of market based solutions to their economic and social problems, right? So less state, more market, um, and uh, in part this is because they understand that kind of big state solutions from the center mean that their region will will pay a disproportionate share of the bill, so they want less of that, they want to keep more of their money. But there's also an, an element, particularly in in uh, sort of market uh, societies uh, where a wealthier uh, a wealthier region simply has a larger bourgeoisie, right? So people who tend to be more kind of centrist or center right in terms of their political outlook and in terms of the kinds of policy uh, choices that they prefer, right? So you see that very very clearly in in Catalonia, but also in the Basque country in Spain, where uh, while there was a traditionally a strong kind of left. Uh, a political option. The dominant political options really were were center uh, center right pro business, both in Catalonia and and in um, uh, in the Basque country. Uh, and then in the, on the on the flip side, uh, you have regions that are sort of relatively less developed. In those regions, the uh, you know the claims are for more state intervention, and the autonomy is meant to facilitate and foster economic development uh, and uh, and distribution of uh, of economic uh, gains right so so you know you can have essentially the same kind of claim give us more fiscal autonomy give us more money give us more resources but what what the what the regions do will will depend to a significant degree on their structural position uh, economically um, but I mean so my this this particular bit of my explanation is quite structural uh, there's a colleague of mine called John Irk uh, who has a, a really great set of articles where he explains the ideological inclinations of minority politicians in, in, in Belgium and in Canada and he shows that it's far more contingent than than what I'm claiming here so so I'm not like you know settled basically on this on this argument Mm-hmm. You know, listening to you and and thinking back to to the book, I'm also thinking, and I know this is not where you want to go, uh, so I'm not saying that that your book goes there, but I do have to think uh, also a bit about you know the the regional eco- politically economic regional differences that exist within the European Union um, and the arguments about redis- redistribution of wealth from more prosperous regions of um, the EU to lesser prosperous regions. And also uh, there again, you know, uh, um, you, you run into the 
problem of perception with um, uh, people, for, for example, forgetting that even some of the most prosperous or richer uh, EU economies actually have uh, some pretty severely underdeveloped regions within themselves. And even in comparatively tiny and comparatively ethnically homogenous Denmark, uh, there are uh, ongoing uh, discussions almost uh, constantly uh, about redistribution of wealth and resources w- within the country, right? Um, so I, I think th- this is really something, again, where I, th- I think um, uh, I'm tempted to say whether you like it or not, uh, but I think it's a good thing. Uh, reading your book, uh, I think, makes us more um, attuned to the relevance uh, uh, and possible consequences, including inadvertent consequences of, of political economy in in, in these uh, constructions. Now, um, maybe kind of my favorite uh, term um, uh, in the book is the majority backlash term. Um, and here again, uh, mea culpa, because I work mostly on Yugoslavia, I, I kept thinking about uh, the whole long discussions that exist in uh, the history of Yugoslavia about uh, constitutive nations um, and the whole role of what is uh, called in English, it's translated as as outvoting in in Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian. The typical term is majorizacja. This notion that it's not just a democracy; uh, it's a state in which the majority, as it were, of each constituent group needs to kind of give a thumbs up for things to be acceptable in the long run. Um, so. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in is um, uh, how um, one avoids this in the long run. I mean, it, it, to me, uh, and, and you, I think you say this, it's, it's, it's easier to get stuck in this um, ratcheting up um, negative feedback loop than it is to get out of it. So what, 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 what do you have in terms of exit options, as it were, for getting out of this negative majority backlash, minority demands loop. So, and I mean, I have to confess that I'm actually writing something right now. I'm finishing a chapter that looks at secession as de-escalation. So it's only one side of that equation, right? and it's, but it's completely speculative, and, and part of the reason it's completely, almost completely speculative, is because it, people have really not looked at that, right? So, so the the um, the most of the work out there is on first of all the kinds of institutions that could prevent this from happening in the in the first place, or the institutions that could kind of manage conflict once you've had the kind of war that. Again, to go back to what we said, Bosnia scene or Iraq or things of that nature, right? So there's really not that much about de-escalation as such. Um, I'm not really, you know, I, I think there's some lessons to be taken from what happened in Canada. Uh because so you had this this kind of episode from about the late 1980s into the into 1995, which was the second independence referendum, where the spirits were you know awoken to to, to use a euphemism. Things were things were kind of tense and escalated, and and of course the 1995 referendum came very close. Um, and then what the what the Canadian federal government did after that. I mean, there were quite a few missteps. Uh, it tried to basically promote itself in Quebec and things of that nature, which is similar to what the UK government's sort of trying to do now in Scotland. And honestly, I think that's the worst possible thing you can do. Um, just because it's, it's first of all, it's cheap. Uh, and uh, in the context in which people are already antagonized, it's going to antagonize them further, potentially. Um, so the Canadian federal government did that, and I don't think that was smart. Um, it also raised the stakes uh, after the referendum. It basically made it more difficult to for a referendum to happen through a Clarity Act, where it basically stipulated that any future referendum uh, would would need to be conducted uh, on the grounds that the question and the majority ought to be clear. Um, and the irony of that is that the, the act actually doesn't stipulate what the clear majority is. Um, but, uh, but what I think in the long term, uh, the Canadian political elite did something very, very smart, 
which is that they that they left the constitutional question uh, in peace. They basically would not touch it with a ten foot pole, essentially since 1992, because they realized, I think, explicitly that constitutional, like big constitutional politics, is incredibly, incredibly fraught. And implicit in that is is the recognition of what my book is saying, which is that these these big symbolic easily recognizable issues uh, are are really really uh, difficult to kind of pass without some sort of with, without some sort of collateral damage without some sort of backlash from the majority or some sort of you know escalation of tensions so I think if you have a a country that is multinational let's say where where you've had this kind of escalation of tensions and emotions, and of course, this this happened very differently in, in Yugoslavia, as you well know, and as people know, than it did in in um, Canada or even Spain or, or Czechoslovakia. Uh, but I think the the if if people believe that they can through po- deliberate policy essentially kind of dampen that conflict, I think most deliberate policies would 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 probably fail. The, I think, and th- and this is a pessimistic. Um, a turn, but I think in the long term it isn't. I think the best thing to do would be essentially to leave the constitutional question alone if you can, in the hope that it would recede from um, from I guess mainstream uh, uh, political dynamics, uh, and that over the long term enough people would become indifferent to the issue. But I think in the in the short term, the best you can hope for is that people simply stop paying attention to it. And the, the the only way you can do that is not to touch it. Um, and I know that 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 that's basically that goes against what we as humans tend to do. We want to do something about what we perceive to be a problem, right? But anytime somebody attempts to do something in 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 that way, I think it actually can uh, can backfire. Yeah, although that you know, I'm thinking again in the Yugoslav case, then it makes it really difficult to see. For example, with Kosovo Albanians, uh, uh, you know, the demonstrations where they're going out on the uh, streets and, you know, as I always tell my students, I mean, uh, a, a, a significantly larger number of people, um, uh, even if you only count ethnic Albanians, lived in Kosovo than lived in Montenegro, right? And, uh, and it's just from a common sense point of view, very difficult to see why there should be a Republic of Montenegro and not a Republic of Kosovo. Uh, and at the same time, we both know that um, uh, even if many of the Kosovo Albanians earnestly, and I think at least in the beginning, it was an earnest wish, uh, uh, wished for Republican status and nothing more. In other words, not secession from Yugoslavia. Um, it was almost impossible for historical and other reasons for Serbs not to misread um, deliberately or indeliberately, uh, Kosovo Republic as a secessionist claim, right? Um, so I think, you know, but the, this is where we get into the nitty gritty, so to speak. But I, th- I think, I mean, I hear you and, and I'm sympathetic to what you're saying. It just, you know, one of the things that, that I was left with reading your book uh, and, it, and it's, in its fine analysis is still with this kind of yearning, well, how do we diffuse the bomb, right? Um, um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy and excited to hear uh, now that you've revealed what you're working on. And, I, and I'm definitely going to be an eager reader of that as well once it uh, is available. Now, um, uh, let's turn to a little bit of a different issue because you've, you've got, uh, some might say, a helicopter approach here. Although I think, you know, you, it's also a detailed rich and I don't think at least uh, from my perspective, um, I think... Um, you know, there's an adequate level of detail in in terms of the empirics of your case studies here. Um, uh, now, that having been said, you also have this interesting uh, statement, and I'm going to quote here from your book again. While the argument at the core of this book does not formally account for agency, political actors' agentic potential is the background assumption. So, well, what about the role of personalities? Because if I go through the book and just highlight uh, the names of people, uh, there's relatively few, um, and we learn relatively little about them. But I'm thinking in Czechoslovakia, um, having Havel uh, in the seat versus Mechar uh, must play some kind of a role or a, a, an even 
much better example, uh, Milosevic and Tuchman, uh probably, again, it's a counterfactual, probably took Yugoslavia on a quite different roller coaster ride than um, Stambulic and Rachan, uh, some of the more uh, conformist um, uh, communists would have done. So here, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you seem to acknowledge the role of personalities uh, most or only in 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 the chapter of uh, on Yugoslavia. And uh, can you say something about? why you didn't do more in looking at the heads of political parties and movements that you analyze in the book. Right, right. No, that's, I mean, clearly a, a valid observation. Um, to start with, I wanted to write an even shorter book. So the book is at, at the, the, the actual content of the, the written content, excluding appendices and everything else is 180 pages, right? If I could have, I would have written a book of 140 pages. <laughs> but with four cases, that would have meant even less detail, and and and, and that would have meant uh, it, it would have really undercut the argument. I think. So, Angrier historians. Uh, if, well, <laughs> there we go. But I did want because I I thought that I could make the claim uh, in those 180 pages. But I wanted, given how complex it is, given that it's four cases, I did not want to overwhelm the reader. Right. Um, but you're right, and you're in a better position than I am to, to, to judge whether or not and, and, and how how much I do uh, for particular cases in terms of personalities. I do mention a few, um, and then I was surprised, uh, you know, when I when I was kind of looking through the book uh, just just before we met, um, and, and now that you mention it, that I didn't actually. There there, there were a few uh, instances because the original manuscript was longer by about. I would say probably 30-40%, and then I called about all of that. So I did I didn't mention quite a few episodes that I found in the end. I was like, well, they're they're wonderful and they tell us something about the time and personalities and everything, but I thought that I could dispense uh, uh, with them because ultimately the argument is structural. It's not saying that it's all structure. Um, so there's a couple of instances, for example, in Quebec in early 1980s, uh, you had this uh, uh, leader of the Quebec national movement, René Lévesque, uh, the leader of the Parti Québécois, which led uh, the, the the province into the 1980 referendum. Um, and in 1981-82, there was this constitutional change that, were, that was conducted over the back of Quebec. Uh, and the resentment inside Quebec was incredible, and the anger was huge, right? And particularly in the Parti Québécois, which were, they were saying, well, let's go for another referendum right now, you know, 1981, 1982. And Lévesque himself, by force, sheer force of his own personality and uh, um, and the gravitas that he had in that movement, basically reversed by himself, de-escalated, blackmailed, basically, his party uh, into standing down. And that kind of paved the way for yet another round of attempts at negotiation, right? And and postponed the second referendum by 15 years. Whether or not that matters, you know, is is an open historical question. But let's say if there was a, in those kinds of circumstances a, a referendum in 1982, maybe it would have been a different kind of outcome, right? Um, so clearly it matters, but I didn't include it in the book, right? Um, Catalonia, similarly. Um, so Artur Mas, who was the... The, the president of Catalonia until 2015 and kind of led the escalation uh, in Catalonia of these claims for for referendum for independence, he was displaced because of a very, very um, kind of prosaic party political calculus uh, by a person, uh, Carlos Puigdemont, who probably was more risk prone. And if Artur Mas was still there in 2017, I wonder if there would have been that 2017 referendum that took place in, in Catalonia, with, of course, very important. You know. um, so so I think there is something to be said about all this. As you mentioned, Milosevic Tuzman versus, let's say, Stambulic or, or let's say Shuvar who was being, I mean, the nationalists in Croatia in, in 1988, 1989 thought that Shuvar was because he was showing teeth to Milosevic on occasion, right? Um, I, I think the that probably would have made a different dynamic, possibly no war, uh, possibly still a breakup, possibly not a breakup, right? Um, but I think it really depends, uh, a lot depends on, on the specific, I guess, constitutional moment 
uh, if you have a multiple transition, like Yugoslavia was undergoing in the late 1980s, right? So it's an economic transition, it's a political transition, right? Uh, and yet, on top of all of that, you have this nationality question. I would say that the role of personalities in that is probably more significant than the role of personalities in more settled states like Spain or Canada. Right, right. I, I, and I mean, the you could say, going back to you talking about structural arguments, the um, perhaps also the more precarious the structure, the more um, space there is for for personal agency in the sense that, you know, uh, if someone throws a brick uh, at the building, it's more likely to do damage, um, if one could use that met- metaphor. Now, um, you, you talked about the importance of, of structure, and uh, I'm going to go back here to um, your my, my, my perhaps problematic, um, and you're free to problematize it if you will, uh, uh, I've already used it, this metaphor of diffusing the bomb. Um, uh, because again, I, I certainly, um, uh, and perhaps should have declared my bias at the outset. I'm, I, I'm kind of a fan of multinational states. Um, and, uh, and in that sense, I have no desire to see the world be, uh, rid of, uh, multinational states. But, um, if, if we use this metaphor, um, you, you talk about, um, uh, the, um, institutions of states being symbols and here i think of well if it if it is um some kind of device that needs to be uh that may be volatile if not handle, handled properly then the technician who is uh uh looking at the wires or even maintaining this institution um uh, is uh or needs to be cognizant of the fact that these wires with their different colors and the different components of the institution are not just technical, judicial, legal things. They're actually also symbols to certain people. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, this, this recommendation you have that people who tinker with multinational states need to realize that the institutions of the states are themselves symbols really opens up new analytical possibilities and and new insights. So perhaps you could give us a, a quick example of one or two of the types of institutions you analyze and also then, you know, tell us, well, what is the link between these institutions as symbols on the one hand and the ontological security or insecurity of the state on the other hand? Right. Thank you for this. And this is precisely, this is what you just said is essentially the whole point of the book, which is to recognize that institutions, yes, they are, uh, you know, rules of the game according to which we distribute, you know, power and all these other kinds of things, resources, etc. But they're also meaningful in themselves, right? Um, okay, so as by way of examples, and, and this is something that kind of comes through the book quite frequently, uh, you know, the, the federal arrangements or quasi-federal arrangements in all of these countries were were essentially this this kind of uh, a field on on which symbolic uh, politics played out. And the same uh, or a particular kind of federal arrangement uh, was was viewed in, in very different ways from the perspective of, let's say, uh, political elites coming from the minority nation versus the political elites from the rest of the of the country and 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 the and the relevant populations as uh, as well. So to give you an example of Catalonia the political elites in Catalonia in 1978, when the, the democratic constitution was being uh, was being written for Spain. So I looked at the debates. Uh, every single Catalan politician, no, mem- no matter their their political hue, was essentially making the same argument, which is, uh, well, you know, Catal- Catalans are a nation. Spain is a multinational state, and they were effectively arguing that some sort of institutional way of recognizing that would be to give Catalonia, the Basque country and Galicia, uh, territorial autonomy that was in some sense distinctive from any kind of territorial autonomy that could be given to any other part of the country, right? Um, And this would constitute a meaningful recognition of the fact that these are distinctive national communities and that Spain is, at least for for the, you know, for starters, that Spain is a, a sort of a multinational reality. Of course, 
the the maximalist goals of these politicians in 1978 were not accommodated, right? So you did have a kind of uh, a territorial decentralization model in which there was some asymmetry provided to these three communities. But over the course of over the course of the next two decades, you had increasing attempts at symmetrization, right? At kind of evening out the um, the um, the, the arrangements uh, not only between these these particular kind of fast track uh, autonomous regions and all the other parts of Spain, all the other regions in Spain where where members of where people live who consider in most cases who consider themselves primarily or exclusively Spanish, right? And this is part of the tension there, right? So once this was done, you had this 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 kickback from Catalonia, from Spain, from Galicia by by certain political parties that said, well, hang on a second, now that we're more equal, we want uh, the differentiation to go beyond what we already had, right? Because what you're doing is by equalizing all of this is you're misrecognizing us. But on the flip side, from the side of people who consider themselves to be Spaniards, this kind of asymmetry, according to which, you know, Catalonia, Basque Country, or Galicia have some sort of quote unquote special status, you know, is problematic because it, 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 it belies their understanding that all Spaniards within the boundaries of the Spanish state are members of the same political community and that they should all have equal rights right so it's it's a it's a clash of different kinds of institutional visions right and you, you see the same kind of thing or a similar kind of thing happening in Canada uh, where you know outside of Quebec people people think that Quebec gets you know special recognition and they want to see Quebec uh, as a province just like any other whereas inside of Quebec many people and including here political elite, basically are saying, well, yeah, but Quebec is not just a province, it's also the, the state of the Quebecois nation, right? So what they're asking is not necessarily for provincial asymmetry, or rather through provincial asymmetry, they're looking for national symmetry, recognition that there are at least two nations, of course, the, the first nations, the Aboriginal population of Canada is normally being chucked aside, but the recognition that there is at least the Canadian nation and the Quebecois nation, right? So the 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 way in which you kind of express this has very very different meanings and different kind of uh, emotional charge on on either side of the divide. I'm, I'm thinking, or when was thinking while while finishing your book, that you know there's also and again the the role of history is interesting here as well, and and even in non-national environments, uh, you know it could be a racial or religious environment, for example. I mean, when we when you look at the backlash against Black Lives Matter in the United States, uh, for example, there you again have, you know, one group that's basically saying, well, look, there's a um, a longstanding uh, structuralized uh, racism that disadvantages us. And we're not really looking for anything more than uh, equal rights uh, that in principle should have been guaranteed us in the Constitution and in the the founding documents of the state and that uh, demand for equal rights um, and protection under the law uh, then gets completely misconstrued by um, a large portion of the majority white population that says, hey, why are you guys asking for for status? I mean, this kind of I mean, it would be funny if it weren't tragic. The 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 all lives matter backlash uh, logo um, or slogan uh, against Black Lives Matter. I think that's, I know that's not what you set out to do, but I I actually think that reading your book helps us understand also why um, things kind of go off the rails there. And we see it as well in the backlash against uh, critical race theory, right? Absolutely. The Um, logic is very similar. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, um, there, there's a lot more we could talk about here, but, um, I want to wrap this up and, and, um, also leave something for uh, the listeners to go and, and read. And, and I, I, I think there's a lot more, uh, we could dig out of your book. So, um, kind of towards the end here, what would you tell colleagues, especially young researchers in your field, if they asked you what related research questions you would mm. like to see them explore? Right. So, I mean, there's there's a there's a ton of stuff that hasn't been done um, with respect to multinational states in particular. Uh, but I think what you just flagged is, is also very important under, to, to better understand this kind of dynamic, the mi- uh, minority majority dynamic that may 
that may be applicable in in other walks of life, not just for for this kind of situation of multinational countries, right? But uh, for me, the largest gap, um, and and where I where I think people should be uh, paying a lot more attention, uh, not only in the study of nationalism, but I'd say in, in in comparative politics overall, is the fact that we have very little conception. And I do a little bit of this at the very end in the concluding chapter here. We have very little conception that the exactly same institution, precisely the same institution, a, let's say a, a particular type of bureaucracy, a specific kind of constitution, even internal borders, whatever, that these kinds of institutions could have remarkably different meaning for different people across time, space, or social networks, right? So the state as such uh, not the particular state that a person finds themselves in, but the state as an idea, will probably mean something very, very different. Um, it'll have a, di- a different kind of normative charge and provoke a different emotional reaction in, let's say, a, a Swedish person in 1970s Stockholm than it would for, let's say, a First Nations person in, in, in Canada in 1990s or a rural inhabitant of Egypt in the 19. 19- 20s, right? So I think this understanding that institutions, because we kind of tend to think about them as these you know, solid things, these kind of rule-based orders, uh, we, we tend to neglect the notion that they actually can have very, very different meaning. And it's the same thing for democracy. So uh, Frederick Schaefer is a kind of political anthropologist. There's a great piece on the different meanings of democracy in a small community in the Philippines. He kind of compares the World Values Survey results, right, which ask the same question about democracy on the, on the presumption that everybody has the same idea of democracy everywhere. Right. And he goes, OK, well, let's see how this actually shapes out in this particular community in the Philippines and comes up with a completely different set of results. Uh, and there's this um, um, anthropologist, Akhil Gupta, who has a fantastic and, and well, by now kind of dated, it's about two decades, three decades or so, but very well known piece on corruption and bureaucracy and state in India in one specific urban uh, context. Right. So I think what we kind of ought to do is, is first of all, have a better conception of this variation in meaning of institutions, but also uh, have more kind of empirical material uh, about what this actually means, you know, uh, and, and, and even how to get at these, these kinds of differences across time, across space. Uh, and I think this is maybe a little too, um, too abstract, but I think the implications are incredibly wide ranging for our understanding of the political world. Well, uh, let's hope that that uh, some of the people listening here will will take you up on that invitation. I think there's certainly enough uh, to keep uh, several research programs going, um, uh, uh, pivoting off of, of your book. And I encourage uh, all of the readers to go uh, read it. And of course, I have to admit, yesterday uh, was actually the 30th anniversary of the controversial and unilateral establishment of the Bosnian Serb entity in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Republika Srpska, uh, and was controversially commemorated uh, in Banja Luka yesterday. Um, so that again had me thinking about uh, the long-term implications and uh, you know what can be done uh, once these processes are set in place. Um, I've been talking today to Carla Basta, who is a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, and we've been discussing his new book, The Symbolic State, Minority Recognition, Majority Backlash, and Secession in Multinational Countries, which was published in 2021 by McGill Queens University Press. Carlo, thank you for being my guest today in, uh, at, in the New Books Network podcast, and thank you for a very thought-provoking book. Thank you so much for all of this, Christian. I had a great time. Great. We will look forward to seeing what you produce in the future, not least the article you mentioned here.